Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. From Sage Magazine, you're listening to Habitations. I'm Noah Sokol. My guest today, Elizabeth Colbert, recently won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize in General Nonfiction for her book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History. Colbert's book begins by exploring the five major mass extinction events that have occurred on the Earth over the last half billion years. Colbert contrasts these big five, as they are known, to the sixth major mass extinction event, which we are in the midst of today. This time, instead of a massive asteroid or a sudden glaciation event, humans are the culprit. In her book, Colbert travels with different scientists to remote ecosystems around the world to see evidence of the many ways that humans are altering the planet and dramatically reducing the Earth's biodiversity. By the end of the century, scientists predict we will lose 20 to 50 percent of all living species. Elizabeth Colbert is a staff writer for The New Yorker and is also the author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe. I spoke with Elizabeth Colbert last year, shortly after the publication of her book. Elizabeth Colbert, thank you so much for joining me. I'd like you to start by having you read one of the two quotes that you've chosen to open your book with, and that is a quote by the famed biologist and naturalist E.O. Wilson. If there is a danger in the human trajectory, it is not so much in the survival of our own species as in the fulfillment of the ultimate irony of organic evolution, that in the instant of achieving self-understanding through the mind of man, Life has doomed its most beautiful creations. I like that quote because for me that it's not only about doom, but there's also something kind of profound and tragic um, about that doom. So why did you choose this quote to to sort of set the stage for your book? Well, it, it sort of brings together a lot of themes, I think, that are in the book, um, or maybe it sets, as you say, sort of sets the stage for a lot of themes that are or further developed in the book, and that Ed Wilson has spent his whole life, you know, studying and writing about. It comes from his book, uh, The Diversity of Life, which was published in the early 90s, I think. And uh, what I like about it is, as as you say, it has a kind of a twist on the on, on doom and gloom, which is that there's self-knowledge, there's understanding, um, that understanding turns out to be very dangerous, uh, he doesn't quite say that, but he, he suggests that. This book is about the five major mass extinction events um, that have occurred on the Earth since life began, as well as the sixth major extinction event, uh, which is the event that we are currently in and that we humans are causing. So I'd like to discuss these events in a bit more detail. But first, can you just briefly describe the concept of background extinction and why it's important to understand background extinction to appreciate a mass extinction event. Sure. Um, background extinction is empirically derived uh, rate of it. You would, you would look at, under the best of all possible circumstances, you'd have you know, a complete fossil record. It's usually done for a big group, you know, say uh, mammals or mollusks. And you would have all of the you'd have a complete fossil record of all the species. Now, obviously, you don't have that, and you'd see what, how long a species on average lasted. Um, so very roughly speaking, you know, species tend to hang around for, say, a million years. Um, but in some groups, they, they are, seem to be longer-lived, and in some groups, they seem to be shorter-lived. And 
So you would comb through the fossil record and you would, you would, you know, sort of divide the, you know, species by, by the time they were around and, and you'd get this rate of, of at which species seemed to wink out. Um, now, we don't have a complete record, but people have tr- tried using very large fossil databases to, to come up with that rate. And, and when they do that, uh, I, as I discuss in the, in the book, for example, for mammals, we get in the relatively recent geological past, we get the, the rate of, you know, roughly you should see a mammal go extinct on a background rate uh, maybe once every 700 years or so. Now I'd like to contrast that with, with a mass extinction event. So talk a bit about what a mass extinction event is. And, and even though we now know each extinction event was very different in character in terms of what caused it and, and the consequences are, which we'll talk about a bit later, what what unites them? Well, a, ma- a mass extinction event is just define. Um, it's a moment, and moment is being used loosely here as sort of a geological moment. So a, a relatively, when a, t- a time when in a relatively short amount of time, a relatively large proportion of the Earth's species, for whatever reason, uh, disappear. And there can be the five big, they're called the big five extinctions. Now, this is all since... We only have a fossil record, really a detailed fossil record, you know, for the last half billion years or so. So it's it's usually, you know, thought of as the last half billion years that we can really look at this. Um, and there can somewhat oxymoronically also be minor mass extinctions. So there are moments when it seems, you know, a, a large but not as large proportion of the Earth's species uh, wink out. <laughs> There's an idea that you just touch on really briefly at the beginning of your book, but I, I found to be quite powerful, um, which is one of the first scientific ideas that we're introducing our kids to is the idea of extinction. So describe what, what you meant by that. Well, when you, when you think about it, I, I, I use that to contrast against the idea that for many, many centuries, millennia, no one, ha- no one extinction didn't come up as an idea. So some fairly sophisticated scientific concepts did did come up, you know, the Greeks and and the Romans had some pretty, and the Chinese, I mean, we know a lot of cultures, the Arabs had, had some pretty sci- sophisticated mathematical and scientific knowledge, um, certainly knowledge of the heavens and of the natural world, but they did not, it seems, so far as we can ascertain, have the idea of extinction. Um, and now we routinely, you know, because of dinosaurs, Barney, you know, we introduce our kids to the idea of extinction at at a very, very young age, uh, that there are animals that once really dominated the planet that aren't here anymore. So so I, I wanted to get that kind of contrast in. So extinction today is is pretty much an accepted fact. Little kids seem to know about it who are playing with right. dinosaurs. The rest of us seem to accept that that extinction uh, right. is a fact. Um but but as you point out in your book, and, and this I completely didn't realize, extinction as an idea, which you just touched on, is really new. And, and it really wasn't truly accepted by the scientific community as recently as like the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, but it, it can be traced back to a French naturalist, Georges Cuvier, who, who features prominently in your book. So can you just talk a little bit about Georges Cuvier 
and and his group uh, called the Catastrophists and and what they believed. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess one thing I should say is it, it's not really that extinction wasn't accepted till the seventies. It's it's that this idea of catastrophic extinction, because that would be a little bit unfair to paleontologists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, extinction, uh, you know, until the until the end of the nineteenth. 18th century, really, the prevailing idea, and it was very, very dominant, was that if the creator had, you know, created a species, why, why would he create it just to do away with it? It didn't, didn't seem to really make sense. And um, so we have, for example, Thomas Jefferson, who was very interested in fossils um, and kept a fossil collection at the White House for a while. Even he really resisted the idea of extinction. He thought when he sent uh, Lewis and Clark out, they were going to find live mastodons roaming around. Um, and he has a very famous quote, which I quote in the book, um, you know, such is the economy of nature that it would not allow any, no single instance can be produced of her having allowed a single one of her creatures to become extinct. Um, and then Cuvier comes along, and he is looking at this, much the same fossils as, as Thomas Jefferson. He has a better fossil collection. He's in Paris and um, at the Museum of Natural History there, which is already quite an impressive collection at that point. We're in, we're in the very end of the 18th century right now. And he looks at these animals, and on, a, on the basis of what we would say, now say is not you know, it wasn't sort of a process of careful hypothesizing and deduction and, 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 and research, but it was just a very simple statement. Look, if these animals, mastodons, were key to his insight um, because they're very strange, they were very hard to place, they have these weird teeth, they don't look like elephant teeth, but they have tusks like elephants, so what are they? They were People were really mystified by them for a really long time. Um, and he said, look, if, if they were out there, we, we would have seen them. Um, and the same went for mammoths, which are very elephant-like. They are quite look quite like elephants, their skeletons, but in their bones and their tusks and their teeth, but not exactly. And he just said, look, if, we, if these animals, they're very large animals, uh, someone would have seen them by now. And that was how extinction as a concept really uh, came into being, and it it explained a lot of things that people had had a really hard time explaining before. So it, it, it caught on pretty quickly. People, you know, realized he was right. Cuvier's work led him to this idea, and, and I want to quote your book here, that, that life was long, mutable, and full of fantastic creatures that no longer existed. Now that makes, makes it sound like he'd be very amenable to another popular scientific idea that was emerging at the time, which was evolution. Uh, but somewhat surprisingly, uh, the opposite is true. He was actually vehemently opposed to evolution. And, and similarly, Charles Darwin um, was, was quite opposed to the idea of these abrupt, um, massive changes uh, causing extinction events, these catastrophes. So Talk a bit about how Charles Darwin fits into this story. Well, that, as, as you say, those are sort of the two, there there's sort of two interesting strains in what might be called biological thinking in the, now we're talking, um, Cuvier and Darwin are really separated by a generation or even two generations, you might say. Um, and they never met, although Darwin's mentor, Charles Lyell, did, did meet Cuvier and was quite friendly with him. 
Um, and so Cuvier um, decided, Cuvier was an, was an anatomist, really, by, by training, not, not that he had much formal training, but by, by vocation and by sort of um, affinity. And he prided himself on being able to tell on the basis of a few bones what sort of animal he was looking at. Now, nowadays, that doesn't strike us as that remarkable, but at the time, it was quite remarkable. His thinking was that if that an animal was perfectly suited to its way of life, right? And so what could possibly drive it extinct? The way he figured it, the only thing that could drive it extinct was a massive change on, the, on planet Earth. So he thought that all extinctions had happened in, in these big pulses, um, and even though as he came up with more and more creatures, he sort of had to come up with more and more pulses of extinction, that didn't really bother him. That was what he thought had happened. And that was the prevailing idea until um, Charles Lyell came along in the 1830s and said, no, the Earth doesn't change quickly. The Earth changes only very slowly. And extinction is also a very slow process. Lyell, I should point out, He's sort of considered the father of modern geology in a lot of ways, but he also did not believe in evolution. He was adamantly opposed to evolution. So being opposed to evolution was no, uh, you know, doesn't, didn't prevent you from having a lot of scientific insights. So then Darwin comes along and sort of takes Lyell's view of gradual change in, in geology and um, applies, it, um, applies it to the biological world. There's also very, very gradual change going on in the biological world, that's evolution, natural selection, um, and that's, you know, On the Origin of Species comes out in 1859, and he is really opposed to the idea that nature changes very quickly. He says, you know, nature doesn't jump, doesn't make jumps, and he also sort of applies that to extinction. Extinction doesn't happen in catastrophic uh, ways it ha- it happens it takes that Lyellian idea it only happens very gradually and now none of these things when you think about them are necessarily true you can have evolution and you can have catastrophic extinction they don't contradict each other but uh, Darwin feels they do and so and his view prevails for a very very long time obviously uh, Cuvier is forgotten discredited kind of reviled even <laughs> and then not till the eighties. When the Alvarez, his father and son, come up with the idea that an asteroid impact was what killed off the dinosaurs, uh, does this idea of catastrophic extinction you know, burst back into science? And now it's very, very, you know, generally accepted that yes, an asteroid killed off the dinosaurs. Yes, there are moments in time when sort of what uh, Darwin and Lyell would have thought of as catastrophes do do occur. There are now multiple converging lines of evidence that that very strongly point um, to an asteroid killing the dinosaurs. And uh, one remarkable thing about this extinction event was how quickly it happened. Um, It seems that a a huge amount of the extinction, especially the dinosaurs, happened in like a single day, which was the day the asteroid hit, um, which you've dubbed the worst day ever on planet Earth. And it's important to say that even though this wasn't the most severe extinction event ever, it, it might have been the worst single day on Earth for, for life. So take us through the worst day ever on planet Earth. Well, obviously no one was around, um, and we have to try to, you know, in some sense infer when, what went on on the basis of, you know, 
modeling and, and, and certain amount of evidence, but it's like, you know, 66 million years ago. So what, what scientists now think happened um, is that, you know, this asteroid, which was very large, probably about the size of, you know, Manhattan, basically, uh, crashed into the planet, right? Um, it's, sort of in, it's now where the Gulf of Mexico is that it would have been, you know, basically part of it would have been sticking out of the atmosphere as it hit. I mean, it was huge. <laughs> and then it is pulverized on impact. It was, it was traveling very, very fast, tens of thousands of miles per hour. Uh, pulverizes. The force is so great that the ejecta, so these you know, tiny pieces of it fly up, crash right back through the atmosphere and as they would have descended, the friction would have been so great that they would have incandesced and basically broiled the surface of the planet. So the, the prevailing theory now is that you sort of got this broiling effect, you got massive fires probably. Um, anything that was uh, above ground did, did really, really badly. Um, and, you know, was it a day? Hard to know, of course, at a distance of 66 million years, but very likely many things disappeared that day. Um, then you would have gotten potentially the sort of equivalent of a nuclear winter, you know, a lot of dust in the atmosphere, uh, and you might, you might have had a very cold period, so you might have been broiled, then very cold. Plant life clearly was decimated, more than decimated, you know, just devastated, uh, so that any, even if you were underground and you crawled out and you needed to eat, what was there to eat? So the question of, you know, whether anything survived that wasn't sort of a carry-on feeder, um, you know, things did survive. The, the sort of miracles that what did survive on some level, you know, and, and people have tried to look at, okay, can we um, come up with a very clear rule as to what survived and what didn't? And it, it's a little bit hard to. Um, you could sort of imagine that these small mammals that were our distant distant ancestors you know maybe they were some of them were living underground that sort of crawled out but but you know some birds some birds survived obviously you know so um so it's hard to see exactly what the rules here were but um but obviously it was a it was it was not easy to get through that post-apocalyptic period interesting that you you bring up rules because it, it seems somewhat hard to to draw rules uh, between the last five as well as the sixth extinction event. Um, what, what was tempting after the Alvarezes discovered that an asteroid had in fact wiped out the dinosaurs and killed a lot of life um, at the end of the Cretaceous was to say, okay, now we've figured it out. Asteroids cause mass extinctions. Um, but, but this was not the case, and we now know that each extinction event was caused by something very different. So can you can you just contrast the end Cretaceous extinction, the extinction event we've been discussing with another extinction event, uh, any of the others? Well, um, the first of these so-called big five is, is, the, is, is called the end Ordovician extinction. It happened about 440 million years ago. And at that point, um, life was still largely confined to the water, so we didn't really have terrestrial life yet. So... Uh, that was a terribly bad event for aquatic life. Um, and it, it's believed that that was caused, all the evidence seems to point to a cold snap. There was this weird glaciation event. Um, and 
we have quite good evidence of that and in, in, in sort of glacial striations, for example, and on rocks that are from that period um, where you where you can still find rocks from that period. And uh, and it's the carbon in the atmosphere um, shows a cold event. But what exactly caused that cold event, a sudden cold snap, sudden glaciation like that, uh, no one is quite sure. Excuse me. And um, so that, but that is the best people can do for the end order emission extinction. Um, so there's no, as you say, there's no clear rule. You know, there, the end Permian extinction, which was the worst extinction uh, of all time, it seems. Um, that seems to have been the opposite. That was a very severe warming episode. A lot of carbon went into the atmosphere. Um, we don't know quite how uh, exactly, although it seems um, it was a, this major sort of burst of volcanism, volcanic activity. Um, and so that was a very warm period. Ocean acidification was very uh, dramatic in that um, moment. Ocean anoxia, no oxygen in the oceans. Um, so that was that seems to be the cause for the end Permian, though once again cause is hard to say because why did... Why do we get all that carbon? How did we get all that carbon in the atmosphere? So, um, yeah. So those are those are some that some potentially to contrast with with an asteroid impact. Over the course of the book, you travel to some pretty spectacular places all around the world, different ecosystems, uh, and you see evidence of past extinction events as well as evidence of the current extinction event. One thing I notice is that at these sites, you, you kind of have a tendency to pocket things that you like, <laughs> like pocket fossils. So yeah, I just wanted sure, to ask yeah. you where this impulse comes from <laughs> to keep remnants of past extinctions. Well, I I was out with it, people generally who were paleontologists and fossil collector. You know, fossil. That's that's all they do is you know smash up rocks and bring stuff home and try to um, analyze it. So uh, they were. They were encouraging the, the the collecting impulse, and I, I have some things that actually would look like absolutely nothing to anyone if if you if you weren't there. Now I'd like to talk a bit about the sixth extinction event, um, the title of your book, and the uh, extinction event that we are currently in. So this geological event is being called informally the Anthropocene. However, this term is increasingly being used in scientific circles. The Stratigraphy Commission of the Geological Society of London is currently reviewing the merit of, of the word Anthropocene and will deliver a decision in a number of years. So what would warrant this, this name being officially recognized? And, and what would we expect, um, what imprint would we expect humans to leave uh, in the fossil record that would be seen millions of years from now? Well, it's it's an interesting um it's a it's a really interesting technical question and you know whole sort of volumes of 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 I think philosophical transactions for example have been devoted to this question of what you know should we for, should it be formally adopted not not just you know by by the whole international commission on stratigraphy which is a very you know conservative body and I I think doesn't doesn't rename geological epochs very lightly um and and but I mean I think I think wh- whether or not it's formally recognized I, I think the exercise has been really interesting and has I think proven to most people most geologists even that 
you know, we, we will be leaving a permanent signal behind. Um, you know, it, people, geologists have all sorts of, you know, technical concerns that it's not really necessarily worth going into here. But, but the, you know, I think it's without a doubt that we will leave behind a, a, a very, very strong <laughs> signal, you know, in the fossil record where, with, with, you know, extinctions. And then um, what will evolve from here will be the descendants of what survived and and was transported around the world by us. So when you start to think about all these things, it's quite you know quite fascinating, really. For example, um, you know we've carried in things all around the world, and they will leave their fossil record behind. So, so the guy that I was one of the moving forces behind this whole um, effort to to formally rename rename the the time period is. Um, a, a British geologist who has this idea, which is sort of tongue-in-cheek and sort of not tongue-in-cheek, of a of a future do- that will be dominated by by giant rats because we have brought rats everywhere. At rats are virtually everywhere, even on very remote archipelagos, like for example, Hawaiian Islands had no rats, had no you know no rodents at all, and um, and they've thrived. And his point is um, that we know that animals. One thing that evolution does is it animals change size pretty quickly, so so you could have, uh, you know, a future a future dominated by giant rats. We we can sort of imagine them surviving even a very very severe extinction event. I'd like to to talk a little bit about some of the places you went, uh, but the one I'd like to talk about a bit in more detail is your experience at the Great Barrier Reef, um, and specifically at this really fascinating island called called One Tree Island. So so tell us just a, a little bit about what you were learning about there. Well, I was there. One Tree is a an island, you know, it's it's it's, it's actually in the reef. All of the islands in the reef or m- most of them are are just bits of reef that have for whatever reason sort of piled up and sort of peak above the waves. They're very very um you know, have very low elevation, maybe we're a couple of feet below above sea level. Um, this particular island is, is absolutely tiny, you know, just a few acres really. Um, and there's a little tiny research station on it. And what uh, the scientists that I was there with were doing was uh, they were actually trying to look at uh, the rate of calcification on the reef. So how you know, reefs have to assemble. It's kind of a weird. <laughs> it's hard to explain a little bit, but but the reef creatures, these tiny little coral polyps, they're called. Each one is spending its time, you know, doing a lot of different things. But one of the things it's doing is sort of adding to this reef structure, adding calcium carbonate to this. What will be this? You know, what is this huge reef? Or but starts out as you know just a little thing, um, and and. The rate at which they're doing that, the rate at which they're adding calcium carbonate, there are many forces that are subtracting calcium carbonate, things that eat away at the reef, just regular erosion, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there's a moment people postulate at which point, you know, the rate of calcification and the rate of erosion are going to cross um, because calcification is slowing uh, as a result of um, ocean acidification. (laughs) Uh, making it harder. We're making it harder and harder for reefs to, to grow. 
Uh, and we will eventually, if we keep pouring carbon dioxide into the water, which we seem to be doing at a very rapid rate, these two rates are going to cross and, and reefs are not going to be able to keep up and they will start to, to decline, you know, shrink. Uh, and eventually we will get no reefs. And reefs are uh, in very bad trouble. Reefs, um, I quote some British um, marine scientists who say reefs are, are likely to be the first major ecosystem to become functionally extinct. And uh, it's very hard to find someone, a marine scientist, who does not feel that reefs uh, by the middle of the century or so are going to be in terrible, terrible trouble. They're already in terrible trouble. On a somewhat lighter note, <laughs> yeah. I just have to get you to explain one uh, really amazing thing that you, you got to witness, which I thought was so cool, which is this this event that occurs once a year uh, where, where corals uh, undergo this synchronous group sex after the full moon. Yeah. So, can you just tell us a little bit about what you got what you got to see? Sure, that, that's that's a coral spawning, and corals spawn um, once a year, and they're they're really interesting. Most of them are hermaphrodites, so they release these little tiny bundles. Um, they look like sort of glass beads that have both eggs and sperm, and then they hit the surface of the water, and they and they burst open, and the night of the spawning, it really is one night. Uh, it can be pretty well predicted based on temperature and full moon. Uh, so this one was in December, um, and that's their summer in Australia, obviously. And we went out, I went out with a bunch of grad students um, on a night snorkel that night of the spawning, and what happens is um, the corals just release these bundles, these little beads. So it looks like these little beads that are floating up. Um, and it looks as if someone's, you know, sort of shaken a huge snow globe, but everything's instead of falling down is falling up. Um, and it's quite magical. It's quite beautiful. Um, of course, it's silent underwater. Um, you had to go out with lights. Um, but in the beam of your flashlight, you could see just these, you know, millions of, of, of little beads uh, dr drifting up to the surface, so it's quite magical. Now, how how is that process being affected by environmental change? Well, um, I there were people there to study precisely that, and what they were doing was taking um, corals who are really pretty adaptable as lab animals. You just break off a piece of a reef, you stick it on a tile with some glue, literally, and the coral will happily, if, you, if it has enough to eat, you know, it'll just sit there and, and, and grow. And so they took these corals that were about to spawn, they put them in tanks, and then they collected um, the these bundles as, as they released them. They then subjected them to various levels of acidification, so bubbled CO2 through the water, and... Uh, tried to, and, and, and it was a massive project looking at how how different levels of acidification affected them at each layer, level, uh, stage of development. So, cor so the, the bundles get released, uh, if you get, then you get fertilization, if you get fertilization, then you get a larva, then the larva has to drop out of the water column and has to attach itself uh, to something hard, some other calcium, some calcium carbonate, and then it itself starts producing calcium carbonate. So it's a, it's a complicated process, um, and they were finding sort of negative results at every stage of this process. And if you don't get new, new corals 
to you know drop out of the water column, start forming their own colonies of corals, uh, then clearly you know you're going to have a decline on reefs. You're going to not replace things that are dying. I want to ask you about a quote um, in the book during your your trip to the Great Barrier Reef, um, and it was none. It was one night uh, where you were you were out at night with a researcher um, named Kenny Schneider. Uh, and you were out visiting a patch of corals to do some sampling, I believe. And, and you wrote this. The reason I'd come to the Great Barrier Reef was to write about the scale of human influence. And yet Schneider and I seemed very, very small in the unbroken dark. So can you talk a little bit about this feeling? Well, we were, we were um, out getting water samples about a mile away from this research station. And to get to the spot where they... They had just had a little buoy out there where you had to collect the water samples so that you collected it at the same place every time. And you would walk out across the reef. There's something called a reef flat, which is the part of a reef that has grown to the level of the water uh, at low tide. And and if you walk, and when the tide goes, goes down, you can sort of almost walk across the reef like you could walk across, you know, a series of tables, basically. And... So we were doing that. It was late at night, one, 12, 1 o'clock at night, pitch black, incredible stars. Um, and you you don't see any human habitation, obviously, even though you know, we weren't that actually that far from the research station. You can't see it. There's no light. There's you know not much power at the research station anyway. Uh, and you just don't see anything. You don't, you know, you don't see the horizon. You know, you only see sort of where the stars end and, and this black water begins. Um, and it's it's definitely the sort of most remote place I've <laughs> ever been. Uh, com- you know, you're completely out of communication with the rest of, of, of the world. Um, so it felt very, very distant from everything. And here we were specifically because we're, you know, they were interested in, in, in looking at human impacts on the planet. So it had that wonderfully sort of paradoxical quality and that was true of many of the places that I went you know in the rainforest in the cloud forest everywhere I was out with people who were looking at how people are changing uh, the world but here we were sort of you know as far from you know what we would consider sort of modern society as as, as you can be these days basically there's a tone uh in, in parts of this book which is echoed in some of the scientists that you, that you travel with, uh, both in, in this book as well as your last book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, which was about climate change, which is acknowledging the seriousness of the current time that we're in, but also like a level of fascination of being able to witness this incredible time of change, this really dynamic time on the earth. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, there's that, there's the, there's the Chinese, um, curse may you live in interesting times i think it's chinese it's always attributed to the chinese maybe it is <laughs> the chinese don't know what we're talking about anyway um may you live in interesting times and it's you know uh, and we live in interesting times and that uh, brings with it um you know a lot of a lot of scary possibilities um but also a lot of you know for research purposes you know fascinating possibilities and many many scientists have told me that they are witnessing changes um at a speed that they were taught as graduate students to believe was impossible this these things didn't happen you know uh, that fast and, and they and they are seeing them and so i think it is um a really 
interesting time in certain fields for, with all the implications of that, of both you know, horror and, and fascination. Your book is uh, quite purposefully not prescriptive. Um, and, and I've heard you say in recent interviews that, that if anything, the importance of the book is sort of this idea of, of bearing witness. So humans are very likely not going to be able to, to change these actions that are, are really largely somewhat benign that we do on a day-to-day basis that are, that are causing these changes. And likely this sixth, sixth extinction event is an eventuality. But there is some importance to just to not just letting the change happen, but 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 observing the change and acknowledging the change and even studying the change. Why is this important if it's going to happen anyway? Well, I I think that we do have to take responsibility. I mean, a lot of terrible things presumably are going to going to happen. But we wouldn't say, well, we we should just pretend they're not (laughs) happening. Um, so it, it's sort of this interesting reaction that people have. To, it seems to me an interesting reaction to environmental problems, which you don't have. Like, like for example, I'm not going to stop the war in Syria, but I don't think people would say, well, therefore, we shouldn't have you know, coverage of the war in, in Syria. Um, so I th- do think it's important just to you know, acknowledge that's part of, of, of what it means to be this sentient creature, um, but I also think that it's important that we do face up to what we're doing. I think it's important in eth- on ethical grounds, um, apart from uh, you know what we're going to, to do or not do about it. And clearly it is important in terms of trying to ameliorate the situation. I mean, we I think it's clear that we could precipitate, you know, a truly potentially end Permian scale extinction. I have had very serious scientists tell me, uh, I quoted one in the New Yorker, say we cannot rule out an end Permian-like uh, outcome here. We we have the power to do that. You know, we just burned through all the fossil fuels on the planet. Uh, we, we could potentially do that. Um, but we do still have a lot of choices to make. Um, and we need we do need to bring that to consciousness. I don't foresee us you know, all skipping through the forest with, you know, butterflies and ending our impacts on the planet. That That's not happening. But we still, there are still choices between, you know, what kind of level uh, of extinction event we want to cause. Um, and certainly, you know, we have to acknowledge that we are causing one uh, before we can consider, you know, what we what we could potentially do to to ameliorate that. So I think that there are practical and ethical and as I say, just ethical reasons, even apart from that, that we need to to acknowledge what what's going on. Well, Elizabeth Colbert, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I, I really enjoyed the book, and it was really nice to talk to you. Oh, thanks. Thanks for coming here. <laughs> Habitations is a production of Sage Magazine at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Our staff includes Ivana Andrade, Jason Daniel Schwartz, and me, Noah Sokol, with production help from the Yale Broadcast Center. My interview with Elizabeth Colbert was recorded last year and originally aired on the New Books in Environmental Studies podcast. You can subscribe to Habitations in the iTunes Store or through the Yale iTunes U channel. For more information about Habitations and about Sage Magazine, check out sagemagazine.org. And thanks for listening.